0: I'd like to invite you to just open up to the book of James. We're in James chapter 4, and there are some, there's some notes, or there's some paper, really, for you to take notes on uh, if you're interested in that. If you are a list maker, uh, I want you to stand up right now. If you enjoy lists, you function well off lists, proudly. I mean, some of you just, there you go, jump up and be proud about it. Stay standing, stay standing. Some of you might enjoy, um, enjoy lists. You don't function off them, but you enjoy like top 10 lists and those kind of things. Stand up if you're one of those kind of people. And let me help you, by the way. Sports Center's top 10 plays of the day. Like that. There we go. I knew we'd get at least a couple on that. Okay. Uh, you can go ahead and, and, and grab a seat. Um, this morning is a little bit, you're going to enjoy this. We said at the very beginning, James was a great book for people who have ADD and struggle with, uh, man, I need action, I need things to move, I need things to flow. One in every two verses, if you were to average out the numbers in the book of James, are a command, are an action item in some in some way, shape, or form. This morning, you're going to get James's, I don't know if they're his top ten necessarily, but he's going to rapid fire ten imperatives off, and just, and just rattle them down. So for note takers, I want you to just write 1 through 10 down, and then you're going to get to kind of fill those in uh, as, we, as we go along. He's a man of action. He puts out a call to those who are running from God. Now, we're, uh, we're having to go back two weeks right now to what we were talking about before. It's a little bit of a challenge. Mind you, this was a letter, right, that would have been read and circulated to the churches, this is written to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. So these are Jews who were, who were dispersed. That's like hitting an anthill and causing panic, and they go everywhere. And so this letter circulated around, and unlike what we often do in American church, we don't sit and just, just read it for you know, a couple of passages, wait a week, and read some more. This would have been all read together. That's why, I, periodically, I just encourage you, sit down and just read the book of James. In fact, in high school, um, I think I was probably challenged by my youth pastor to do this, but uh, I just read through the book of James every single day for one month. And 30 times in the book of James, um, you know, it's like it's like big-time wrestling. I mean, it just thrashes you. You know, it's like the, the Word of God just beating you up Go, going, man, I have a lot of things to work on in my life, but it, but it let it kind of soak in. So I'm going to reach back a few verses uh, this morning, and instead of just 8 through 10, we'll start in verse 6. So if you're there, follow along with me. If not, listen up. This is uh, the first half of this chapter James has been talking about Warnings against, uh, making friends with the world, really, and just worldliness. And, and if you're with me, if you're tracking with me, you don't need to raise your hand on this one. Um, but the world has a way of creeping into our life, does it not? A world has a way of creeping into our homes. The things that we don't want to do have a way of seeping in. And we go, man, how do we get a hold of this? How do we grab hold of this? And we're gonna, we're gonna look at that. Uh, look at, look at verse six with me. It says this. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now listen for the 10. Here they are, verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray. God, just now, as we open your word, as we hear that, as that lands on us, God, I pray that by your grace you would allow some words that I say and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, God, to change our lives, to grow us up in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, the first one is, uh, man, I'm already behind. See, just like James, I'm kind of uh, just, we got to keep things moving here. Uh, the first one is this, submit. Uh, so if you're a list taker, write one, and then write the word submit down. Uh, we're not going to take a ton of time, because two weeks ago we looked at this. We looked at what it means to submit to God, but let me just throw this out to you, that if you don't submit, if submission is not in there, I would say that all of the other nine wouldn't make any sense. It's the starting point and the foundation to build everything else on. For instance, to mourn over your sin, but not really submit and yield to God's rule and mandate over the universe and over the best plan for your life, it won't make any sense. You won't mourn over it and see sin from his vantage point. Can you get that? So submission is really, really foundational. What we said, too, is he starts with submission, which is a form of humility and humbling yourself and being brought low. And not making much of yourself, walking in as a needy person. And he ends with, with being humble. So he kind of sandwiches all ten of these with like a humility sandwich. He just puts submission up front and humility at the end. Just, just a massive theme. And again, uh, if you want to go back and listen online, you can. We got podcasts that just, that just cover that. But we looked, we looked pretty extensively at that. Uh, number two is this, to resist the devil. And resisting the devil, uh, I would I would say this that uh, in in general I think I've come across two extremes of of people in this Christian and not people in the church people not in the church. Um, the the one extreme is that uh, is that there's a devil under every rock and behind every bush and behind every you know broken down tire in your car and and the devil's just everywhere and you know you. You're eating some you know, some pizza one night, you get indigestion, it's the devil. It's like, no, that's just greasy pizza that, that did that. That's really all that is. The second extreme to that, though, is either to minimize and kind of make a caricature out of him, the little man in the red suit with the pointy tail and the pitchfork, right? Or to ignore and completely say, uh, say that he's not there altogether. And, and it freaks you out, you don't like talking about it, you don't like thinking about it, or clearly that part of it is just myth, and so you just kind of push it out of your mind. I don't know if you identify with one of those two kinds or if you've seen one of those two kinds of people, but here'd be my challenge to you. To the first one, read your Bible. Or uh, really, to the, to the, to the second one, I guess. To the one who's ignoring the devil, I'd say read your Bible. He's there, prowling, seeking, stealing, and he has an army of demons. That's real. And that's, that ought to be scary stuff in a way. But to the other crew that, that find him everywhere and are, almost living in paralyzed fear of the enemy and Satan, I would say, read your Bible. He's defeated. He's overcome. He's under the sovereign control of God, and he's doomed with his minions to a lake of fire. So on both camps, I would say, read your Bible and read it, and that's what we constantly do here. Don't take my word for it. Don't take your community group leader's interpretation for it. Read your Bible. You don't think Satan's there? Jesus talked about demons in the spiritual world all the time, highlighting the fact that we ought to think clearly about what's really going on. At the same time, we don't see him running around, freaked out and out of control. Some of you have heard and maybe said the phrase, the devil made me do it. Ever hear that before? Ah, the devil made me do it, right? Uh, In essence, what is that kind of trying to do? Yeah, yeah, it's kind of taking the blame and saying, you know, the... The, uh, you know the little the little one on the left or right, you know the little me that 's in the red outfit, you know all that kind of silly stuff, but the people throw that that term around it 's a little colloquialism that that, that, that people do, but um, did you know that that 's not true here 's the interesting thing: the devil cannot make you sin the devil can lead you to sin, can tempt you to sin, can put things in your path. however, the devil cannot make anyone sin the devil is required to have the accommodating will of a sinner to commit an act. So there's there's a power, but under the sovereign rule of God, it's this far and no more. We see an amazing depiction in the book of Job with this, don't we? Where the book of Job, the first chapter, it just pulls back the curtains of what's going on in this world. And Satan comes and wants to test Job, and God allows him... A line. He says, you can go this far, but don't you touch his body. God's in control. God's sovereign. He won't let us be tempted beyond what we're able. So the devil doesn't make us do it. The devil can lead us there, but the person has to act. The other thing um, is that the devil is overcome and powerless against the word of God. You see this with Jesus most starkly when he's tempted in the wilderness. The beautiful Garden of Eden where everything was perfect and as God designed was now under a curse because of Adam's sin. And that cursed garden had turned into a wilderness. And Jesus is now out into this wilderness where there's thorns and and wild beasts and these different things, and he's being tempted. And how does he combat Satan's attacks? He uses the word of God. That's a great picture of Satan being resisted and him fleeing from, from you. Finally, this great promise. When Satan is resisted, he flees. There's a great book called Just Courage. A guy by the name of Gary Haugen um, was a lawyer, a high-impact lawyer. And he decided 10, 15 years ago to start this organization because he discovered something that's very hot right now. And that is the disgusting practice of human trafficking. And if you don't know, there are slaves worldwide, more slaves worldwide right now, I think, than at any other time in history. Unless you think it's over there, um, man, I'm blanking on this website. I get a thing from them every week on it. Um, But there's maps and specific details detailing instances of it in the Bay Area. In fact, on the West Coast, the Bay Area and Los Angeles are two hubs of this going on. Disgusting, evil practice going on. Here's what Gary Haugen did. He's kind of a big guy. I actually saw him speak in person one time. And uh, here's what he decided to do. He decided to take the thugs and put them on the defensive. And what he started to do was resist. So in Thailand and Cambodia and some of these places where sex brothels and children trafficking and all kinds of gross stuff was going on, he said, let's go defend those who can't defend themselves. And what he started to do was to go in and steal people out of the brothels. He began to go in and legally shut down the businesses that were going on. And what he started to do was this. Through courage, he got angry enough to act and through just simple courage of doing the right thing, he began to take these thugs and they began to go have to crawl back under the rocks from which they came out of. But when evil is left unopposed, what does it tend to do? It just spreads like gangrene, doesn't it? What you find with a lot of bullies is they're not so tough once someone just stands up to them. And that's what this organization does. I love the organization. He says that every single morning, uh, or every single day in the organization, it's now a worldwide organization. Everything shuts down. I think at eleven o'clock in in right kind of the middle of the day, they shut everything down. Right when you're kind of most productive, you've been there, you've kind of got your morning going. They shut down, and the whole organization stops to pray for half an hour, just recognizing God. We can't do a single thing in the forces of darkness in this battle we're in unless you're in this. So help us. Love that. Powerful book, amazing read. It will, it will, I think, stir some good things in you. The book's called "Just Courage" uh, by Gary Haugen. Um, that's a picture of resisting. Um, this football season, which some of you are football fans, uh, you're going to get a little picture of the word resist and what it looks like uh, every single play on every single team of the football season this year. Okay, You're going to see it when the ball is snapped and you have an offensive and a defensive line, just a bunch of meaty men just bashing into each other, shoving and pushing and this and that. And what you get a picture with the word resist is this. The word literally means to stand against, to oppose, to withstand means this, you don't need to go out hunting for a fight. You don't need to go out and look to go be casting things out and running around and and wielding this and and harshing in. You know what you need to do? You need to stand and resist and withstand. Those are the things that that you need to do. Ephesians 6.13 says this, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. The evil day is going to find you. The world is going to press in on you. You're going to be tempted. You're going to experience trials. We're living under the curse right now. It won't always be this way, but we're living under the curse right now. Amen to that? Some of you have a hearty amen. Some of you can barely whisper an amen because it's been so heavy this week. In the day of evil and having done all to stand firm. When we went through the book of Ephesians, we used this, this image of a wrestler, right? And that you're ready. You've got the armor of God on and you're ready to withstand 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 8 to 9 says this, be sober minded. That's going to fit in well with our passage today. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, is dressed in a cute little suit and makes you have a second helping of cookies? No. That's just a silly little cartoon. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. What a promise that is. Friends, let's be firm in our faith. Let's look for the way of escape in every temptation and trial to doubt God and let's resist, and let's claim the promise that when we resist, God comes in and does the rest of it, and, this, and the enemy flees. Satan wants us to doubt, to deny, and to disobey God. We know this from his temptation with Eve in Genesis 3. We know this from his temptation with Jesus in Matthew 4. So what does resisting look like? It looks like refusing to do these things. Being sure in your faith so that you don't doubt. You're not wishy-washy back and forth. Well, everyone's got a point. Do your homework and figure out, if this is God's word, then stand on it. Build on it. If Christianity is true, remember we did this in our apologetic series in January, what's the value of of a religion? The value of a religion is, is it true? If everyone's just a used car salesman heralding great points about the car. If it's not true, it doesn't matter what's said. So don't doubt, and don't forever be going back and forth. Don't doubt, don't deny, and don't disobey. That's what resisting looks like. I touched on this two weeks ago, but if you take submission and resistance, and you invert them, and you go the wrong way with that, do you see how that messes everything else up? There are times in my life where I am pushing away, I am resisting, I am running from the very one that I need to be drawing near to and be close to. And not only that, I'm submitting to, I am yielding my will to, I'm yielding my affections to the very thing that is trying to destroy me, the passions and the lusts that are at war within my life. That's... That's a scary place to be. Some of you are walking in that right now. I know that in a room this size, there are some of you walking right now. You're submitting to the passions of this world. You're submitting to the devil and his world system and his values. And you're resisting God. Frightening place to be. Number three is this, to draw near to God. Now, relating to God requires submission. That's simply due to his nature. He's majestic. He's he's sovereign. He's all-powerful. So the fact that, that it requires submission is just due to his nature, that we would submit to that. If we're going to relate to God, we recognize and realize that he's altogether different and holier than us. But the fact that relating to God doesn't just involve submission, but also includes close fellowship, and friendship, I think, is just a picture of the sheer goodness and grace of God. These are two theological ideas that kind of coalesce in how the Bible um, represents God to us and how God is drawing us into relationship with himself. The first word is transcendence. And transcendence means that he is above, other than, distinct, and higher in all and every way. So that's where it should rub you raw a little bit um, when someone prays, to his homeboy Jesus, to his buddy God. You just go, man, you don't get it. If, if that's your picture of who you're praying to, that's, that's, somewhat, that's a God in your own image. That's a God in your own making. He's not our homeboy. He's majestic and holy, and to be on the wrong side. We talked about what it like that God opposes the proud. He's a mighty warrior. That's not how we approach God. But some of you have been raised in a church tradition, maybe a family tradition, where kids were to be seen and not heard. Father was to be feared, but never drawn close to. Never expressed love to you. Never expressed appreciation or love for you or communicated warmth and touch to you. Isn't it powerful that God can redeem your broken father image? If that's your picture of father, and I use the word father God know that that's broken. Know that that's the curse. But isn't it beautiful that God can take that and redeem it? You know how God reveals himself as Father? Does he reveal himself as higher and holier and and should be approached with fear and trembling? Absolutely, because that's who he is. That's his glory. That's why we worship him. But here in this passage, he's saying to draw near to him. This is called his imminence. That's the other theological word. Transcendence is his bigness. Imminence is his closeness. Imminence is that he is also near and even in us. Jesus said this, I call you my friends. We're just saying that everyone was made for Jesus. If there was ever a boss... A lord, a king, who could have demanded utter allegiance, and that all you are is is someone who just falls and just does whatever he says without any closeness. It would be Jesus. It would be right and just. But what a beautiful picture of grace that Jesus says, I have now called you friends. It says elsewhere in in family terms, brothers and sisters. There's a promise to claim, and that is this, that as you draw near to God, He will draw near to you. Look at Psalm 73, 28. But as for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter. That's a great picture. The sovereign Lord is someone that I'm drawing near to and close and intimate with. Psalm 145, 18 says this, The Lord is close to all who call on Him. Yes, to all who call on Him in truth. These are great passages, aren't they? There's a problem. The problem is, I think many of us don't believe these passages. I think many of us don't believe passages like this and others that call us to be drawing close to him and be near and intimate with him. Some of you probably have really struggled with our psalm series and the idea of God as lover and him revealing himself that way. And that the church is the bride of Christ and the bridegroom is going to come back one day. And we're looking forward to that day and that kind of intimacy. I don't know if any of this sounds familiar, but I've heard this a bunch. When I help other people, I feel loved by God. When I'm at church, I feel close to Him. When I'm reading the Word on a regular basis and when I'm praying when I'm involved in ministry, when I'm attending community group, when I'm shutting down this lifelong sin and I'm I'm on a good streak, then I can really sense that God loves me. But when I wander, when I fall, when I struggle, when I'm absent, not so much. I don't feel God really loves me. That means we don't believe passages like these two in the book of Psalms. The word gospel means good news. And the good news that Jesus came to preach speaks to this very point. That when you are awkward, when you are ashamed, when you are indifferent and wayward and forgetful and slothful and resentful toward God, you know what God's saying to you? Get over here. Not get over here, but get over here. Come here. Don't run from me right now. Who wants to keep you from God in those moments? Think about it it's the devil. He wants to steal the grace of God from you in that moment, does he not? God's wooing you, saying, get over here in those moments. Don't keep running. Don't keep me at arm's distance. A guy by the name of Mike Iaconelli was a youth pastor who's gone home to be with the Lord. In his book, Dangerous Wonder, there's a chapter on intense listening. And he recounts this story. He used to quip that he had the slowest growing church in America. And it was a counter to all the people who were claiming to be the fastest-growing church in America. Served in a little church in Northern California out in the woods. It says this, Our church recently held a one-day retreat for adults. A couple of young people decided that they wanted to attend as well. We spent the day reading different scriptures, meditating on the scriptures, and then journaling an assigned task. All participants were asked to journal, individually, what they thought Jesus might say to them, if he wrote them a letter. We then gathered as a group to read our journal entries. The adults found it difficult to read theirs. Many were so concerned about interpreting Scripture correctly that they were afraid to be embarrassed by their lack of understanding. Then there was Jane. Jane is a 17-year-old high school girl. She volunteered to read hers first. Uh, first of all, she said hesitantly, I think I messed up. You wanted us to write about what Jesus would say to us, and instead I wrote a dialogue between Jesus and me. Interesting, isn't it? Her first concern was that she messed up, which is why children lose their ability to listen to God. We assured her that whatever she had written was just fine, and here is her dialogue. I feel awkward because it's been so long since I've been near you. Jesus. I've missed you too. I think about you every day. But I've messed up. I've done a lot of things that I regret. It's okay, child. I forgive you. I don't understand. I turn away. I ignore you. I'm still here right beside you. I try to live without you, even though I know deep inside that you're still a part of me. You don't have to make yourself lovable. I love you how you are. Even after everything I've done and everything that has happened, would it offend you if I called you bizarre? I am bizarre, more so than you'll ever know. This may seem strange, but could, could I please ask you to hold me for a little while? My child, I've been waiting for you with outstretched arms. There's, there's a capacity for us to draw near to God in some different terms. I think some of us can draw near to God with a powerful poem that goes along Facebook or floats through our inbox and really has nothing to do with God. It just stirs some emotion. I think there's others who've missed out on what it means to draw near to God because it doesn't sound very theological, appropriate, or tie-worthy, or church-worthy. And we're waiting for that. Let me give you two passages. Write these down. Two passages that the Scriptures give us some indication. There's so much more. Do a study of what it looks like to biblically draw near to God. Hebrews 4.16 says this, Let us then catch this with confidence. Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In time of need there is an enemy who wants to keep you from drawing close confidently to the throne of grace. And yet that's exactly what we need in our time of grace, in our in our in our time of need. Hebrews 10:22 is a second one. Let us draw near, there it is again. With a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. There are so many more, and as a community group this week, if you're meeting... Oh, by the way, they're starting up again in Mass on September 30th, is when we're having kind of a community group fall on ramp. But some of you meet uh, offline, some of you are continuing to meet through the summer. We're going to look more about the idea of drawing near to God. But here we see drawing near to God, full assurance of faith, and this idea of our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. That moves us on to number four here, which is this. Clean your hands. You're going to see, uh, I'm going to show you just a couple of scriptures, but you're going to see all through the scriptures this, this, this uh, putting together of a pure hands and a pure heart. And if I could just kind of put it succinctly, the hands represent the external, that which is seen, that which you're doing, the outer life. And the heart represents things like your will, like your emotion, like your attitude while you're doing something. So you put those together and you start to see body and soul, kind of a a complete person there, right? So cleaning your hands. Um, anyone have any Purell hand sanitizer on them or, or hand sanitizer in general? Clink, see, I, this is just perfect. Can I, can I see it for a second? This is great. I was going to go get some. I thought, no, nope, there's people in our, in our congregation that have some. Now, Clink, do you use this often? Uh, yeah. OK, I'll have you know, Clink is an ER nurse. So he's around things and probably thinking that way a little bit more. Do you mind if I use some? OK, my hands are kind of filthy. See, Clink's Klink, going to throw the bottle out. He's like, this, is, this whole thing's defiled now. Um, how many of you, uh, I don't use this very much evidently. There we go. Um, how many of you tend to wash your hands before you eat? Raise your hands. Okay. Some of you are like, I know I'm not supposed to lie in church, but I better get my hand up. That's just awkward. Um, let me, uh, let me ask a few of you, uh, to, to just, to just be willing to share your hands. Um, why, why do you do that? Lisa, I'm going to pick on you. Why do you, why do you wash your hands before you eat? You might find some interesting stories from Lisa, particularly as she has traveled much of the world. And and uh, yeah, that's a that's a good answer. So hygiene might be one reason. Okay. Um, anyone have a, a different reason besides hygiene? Current? Because you have to. Yes. Who says you have to? Your dad does. Your mom does. So, thank you, Current. That's really honest. Out of obedience, right? Some do it. Some do it out of hygiene. Some do it just simply because they gotta, right? Uh, you ever find yourself doing it just out of habit? I mean, it's just kind of a ritual. That's what you go do. I don't really even think about it sometimes for my kids, the hygiene point. I just, that's what I say. You know, dinner's ready. Go wash your hands. It you just can kind, of, can kind of blur it out. Now, there might be other reasons, but let's stop with those, those few. Those are, those are good. Um, let, me, let me toss this illustration out to you. If you see someone that was, that was in the process of washing their hands, but in the middle of washing their hands, they kept reaching into this nasty, disgusting bucket that just had a bunch of junk, mud, and worms, and different things in it. And they kept kind of sticking their hands in there, and they kept washing their hands. What would you think about them? Not making good progress. <laughs> Not making good progress. Yeah. Some of you are like, that's just inefficient. Uh, that shouldn't be done that way. No, no, you're doing it wrong. Um, yeah, the, the uh, teachers want to teach them. The engineers are saying that's inefficient. Um, I would just think they're a little bit psychotic. Like, what are you doing, you know? That, that isn't right, that, 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 that you're doing that. Of course, hands uh, and, and purification. If you were to go and read through the Old Testament and just start to do some searches on BibleGateway.com or something like that, just just cleansing ritual and purification and washing and those kinds of things, what you'll find is this fascinating study all through the Old Testament. There's all kinds of things. There's giant basins. Jesus, the first miracle he ever did was to turn water into wine. You know what the water was? Giant jugs that were used in purification ceremony. Now, there's some hygiene to that that, that God, praise God, put in place and allowed you know, his people to, to not suffer some things because of that. But there's so much more. Like any ritual, like anything God's asked us to do, there's so much richer meaning than, than just this thing. Rebellious kids go, why do I have to do that? But, but as, you, as you grow up, you look and you go, wow, that, that, was, that was a gift to be told, to wash our hands and to have this, this ritual cleaning. Isaiah 115 says this. When you spread out your hands, in prayer he's talking about, I will hide my eyes from you. God talking through the prophet Isaiah. Why would he do that? Why would God hide his eyes from you in prayer? Listen to this. Even though, you're, even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Here's the picture. We come to church. Most of us washed up. Some of us opened the door, quickly whipped out our hand sanitizer, washed up again, depending on your level of hygiene. And we can sit in here And we can have clean hands, as it were, from the external point of view. No one sees mud on our hands. No one sees blood on our hands. But I wonder if God, through the prophet Isaiah, might say similar things to those of us in our churches that come with a remembrance as recently as yesterday, as this week. Words that we're saying that we're not to be saying. Places that we're going that we ought not be going activities that we're involved in that we ought not be doing. The message is this. Stop it. Stop it. I love the simplicity of Isaiah. Cease to do evil. Don't wait for a program. Don't wait to be able to show that you're sincere. Don't wait for a retreat. Don't wait for a different thing. Just stop it. Stop doing it. Cease to do evil. Cleanse your hands is what that's talking about. Now, the truth is you'll always find your way back to the mud, back to the sin, back to the things, unless what? Unless your heart is changed toward it. If our affections remain, remain close to that sin, some of us can't imagine our lives without that sin because it's become such a part of us. And when it says to boldly and confidently approach the throne of grace, and to draw near to God, because we have a we need we have help in in time of need. That's our help. That's our that's our place of need. Is that we keep going back to it? Psalm sixty six eighteen says this: If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. James isn't just concerned with the outward of the heart, but with the hands or with the with the with the heart as well. Psalm twenty four three says this. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands, whose external life is working toward things and a pure heart. So number five is to purify your heart. Purify your heart is symbolic of your inner life, attitude, motive, will, affection. Now I hope there's something stirring in you right now. I hope there's something stirring that says this. Wait a minute. I can't purify myself. I can't change my heart. Any more than a dead person can raise themselves. If you're, if you're having that tension go on, good for you. That's the gospel. That's the gospel of grace, right? We preach against this all the time, about grabbing yourselves up from your bootstraps and just trying harder. Learning a few more principles so that you'll be more Moral and thereby somehow acceptable to God. But note the order of this. Submit. Resist. Draw near. Now as those things are taking place, what does God promise when you draw near to Him? He will draw near to you. When God draws near to you, when you're in fellowship with God, you know what you can't do? You can't make peace with sin in your life. It just feels yucky. You go, I can't do this. That's you being... At war with the world and a friend of God. The idea of heart and hand going together, I want to just illustrate this by showing you Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel are two brothers in the book of Genesis, right? They both bring an offering to God. One of them brings an offering of first fruits from grain, the other one brings an offering of first fruits from the herd. They both have things in their hand, right? They both come, and those things, in and of themselves, we know they're acceptable, because God actually mandates later on in other offerings and and sacrifices to bring those kinds of things. But what does God do? God rejects one, and God accepts the other. What's in the hand is only part of the equation. What's in the heart is the other part of the equation. Here's the picture. You can get gold stars on being a community group member, you can get gold stars on being a deacon and holding different titles in the church, you can get a gold star in a 100% attendance award for Sunday school through your adult years at church. And all the while be bringing what looks on the outside like a very similar offering to the next person. You might even raise your hands when we sing. You might tear up at the scriptures. And yet, clean hands and pure hearts go together. God cares about what's happening with both. Coming clean happens by confession and by repentance. Purifying hands means putting down sin, purifying hearts means confessing and setting your mind and hope completely on God and His glory. And these next few that we're going to get into begin to touch on that. Those who are struggling today, and I want to say this with a merciful tone, those of you who are struggling today saying, Dave, that is not me. I don't know that I'd put it in such words to say that I'm living for my glory and building my kingdom. But truth be told, I care a lot about my name and not so much about Christ's name. And yet I'm here today making offerings and I see myself in the scriptures. This next section for, is, is for you. The next section is for you. It's also for those who would say, that's not me. I am living for God's glory. But when we see our sin, there's something called godly sorrow that we're going to look at. James 1 8 says this that the, that the person who's doing this is a double minded man. He's unstable in all his ways. And some of you have felt that. This back and forth, and you're sick of it. You're tired of it. Get off that treadmill. It starts today. It's as simple as as submitting to God and saying, God, I'm taking you at your word. I'm going to start today with that. I'm going to just come clean with some things. Where's Jenny at? Jenny, why don't you come on up? I just said that you don't have to wait for a retreat Um, to live a life of confession and do these different things. But I wanted to bring Jenny up because of of, of a women's retreat coming up. And it is a good time, though, when we get together, when we pull away from our normal routines of everyday life, to be dealing with some of these deeper heart issues that in the normal scope of life we sometimes don't find time for. All right, look at verse 8 with me. It says, be wretched and mourn and weep. That's where we're going. Okay, buckle up. We're going to hit these last five fairly quick, so you got to listen very fast. 2 Corinthians 7.10 distinguishes good grief from bad grief. Listen to it. It says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Really deals with it. Whereas worldly grief produces death. I don't know if there's a more foreign Bible passage in America in 2012 than what we're talking about today. The idea that it's somehow a good thing and we're commanded to be wretched and to mourn and to weep is just utterly foreign from most of what I see in the world. Uh, Before we get into the specifics, here's two observations. One is this, that that depression and despair are not Christian characteristics, but mourning over sin is. So a Christian should be characterized by deep joy. But you get to deep joy by walking through the path of really dealing with your sin. Not minimizing it, not putting it in the past, not ignoring it. Those kinds of things. Secondly is this. Awareness of your own wretchedness before a holy God is completely, hear me, is completely beyond you. So if you see yourself as wretched before a holy God, you know what that is? That's a gift of grace. That's God revealing spiritual truth to you. We don't see ourselves this way. We feel like our intentions were pretty good. I meant to. I would have, but I got busy. I would have, but I wasn't equipped that way from my family or my church. We tend, even those who self-loathe, love themselves. Whether you self-loathe or self-preen, we're born prideful. So to see ourselves as wretched before a holy God and to really see a picture of our sin, it's a gift of God. It's a sign of God working in your life. It's a good thing. It's a good place to be. All right, here it is. Number six. Number six is to be miserable. By the way, I found these numbers 1 through 10 just from some many... Cultural icons. These are things that aren't bad in and of themselves. I took my son and some of his friends down to Six Flags Magic Mountain this last year. Uh, It's not a bad place. But do you know what the word amusement means? What does to muse mean? It means to think, right? What does the prefix ah mean? To not think, right? Isn't that kind of frightening? What if you live your life in the world of amusement? That's all you ever do. You live your life not thinking about the deeper issues of life. I don't know if you're amused by uh, you know, roller coasters or repulsed by them, but there's something out there as I've been putting these different numbers out. These are just things we see in our daily life. Not bad things, but man, they can deter us from the most important things. All right, number six is to be miserable. Glad you came to church, aren't you? You know, there's laughter and happiness in pursuing sin. There is. Or else it wouldn't be so popular, right? It wouldn't be so tempting for us. But there's a catch. Moses says in the book of Hebrews that instead of of going after the fleeting pleasures of sin and being counted in Pharaoh's household, he rejected that in faith. The catch is that it's fleeting. It's there for a season, but it's fleeting. The truth is there will be misery over your sin, either now for a season which leads you to the Savior, or later, for eternity, which leads you to torment. Powerful truth. Every sin, every idle word we say, there's misery for it. Available now, or available later. Now, there's religious misery. These are people who are saying, I feel bad about things I've done. That's a good starting point. But this can turn really demonic and wayward from God. This is where you begin to do self-penance. You're going to somehow pay for this. Some of you might be sitting here listening to my voice, feeling like that's what you're doing. I really hate being at church. I'd rather be watching football, but I've done some rotten stuff. I'll listen to this guy. That's, that's religious misery. Like worldly sorrow, it just leads to death. Listen to Colossians 2.23. You'll hear people say, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Such rules are mere human teachings about these things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desire. Yesterday, I was going to put the final touches on this sermon. I knew I would have some time. My son was in an all-day water polo tournament, and between three games, there was a lot of of time in between. So I brought my laptop. I was going to go uh, hit up some place and, and see some things. I had already had this portion of the scriptures written down. I'm walking into a Starbucks. I decided to take a screenshot of where I was. This is a Starbucks in Hollister. If you don't know Hollister, here's Hollister. Here's everything else. So you don't drive to something else and go do something. You just hang out. So I'm there in Hollister. I go find this Starbucks because I need some air conditioning and a, and a plug for my computer. And as I am walking into Starbucks, shorts, flip-flops, a t-shirt, a guy's sitting to my right, and as I'm walking up, he says this, you believe in the Holy Bible? I said, what? I kind of took me back. People don't normally say this. I'm not wearing a, you know, clerical collar, you know, big hat, robes, nothing. Not even a giant Bible, a backpack. I said it again, you believe in the Holy Bible? Here's the front door. Here's him. Yes, I do. <laughs> I'm like, I want to talk to this guy. What's this guy got? He says this. Listen to this. Can't believe all those pastors getting married. Lust and homosexuality. Don't you know it's evil for a, for a man to touch a woman? This is an odd conversation, isn't it? <laughs> I, said, uh, I said, let me just get this straight. I said, you don't think pastors should marry No, starts going off on some things. I won't tell you how the conversation finished. You can catch me later for the rest of it. But I walked in, I sat down, I opened my laptop. And this is another passage that was already written down in my notes. And I looked at it and I just said, God, I guess I needed one more illustration. So thank you. Here it is. You ready? 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 3. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. I have seven children that say, praise God and amen that you got married, Dad, (laughs) and that you didn't forbid yourself that. There are those who will, who will do these outward, self-imposed, clean hands things that are following deceiving spirits. They might seem more righteous than our church. They might seem more on the correct path than those disciples that followed Jesus. Don't make any attempt to accomplish atonement through self-imposed misery. Nothing. If you come dragging something in... I mean, the Lord would just say, what is that? Leave that. Is that supposed to atone for what you did? Don't bring that in here. Don't make any attempt to make God love you more, to make your sin less by bringing something into God. That's actually an offense to what he accomplished on the cross. That's good news. We get to leave it all behind. That's not the picture of the gospel. Do Contemplate your sin. Do be miserable. Do be wretched over your sin. Then trust completely in the gift of Jesus. That's good news. Number seven is this, mourn. This is talking about funeral type mourning and sorrow when you see sin for what it is because sin leads to and causes death. And there are things in a relationship that that can die the same way you'd have an open casket up here and say, that now is dead. And I hate the curse. I hate sin. I hate that that's what that's done. Is there forgiveness? Is there restoration? Does God allow those things and then be able to build on that? Yes, He does. But to see your sin ought to cause mourning. Luke 7.47 47. This idea of those who have been forgiven much, love much, was given. This was Jesus when his feet was being white with the hair of a woman whose tears had flooded his feet. She was a known sinner, as if the others weren't. And those who have been forgiven little, love little. That could just as easily read this way. Those who are aware of all their sin... And it's devastating price tag. Love much. The gospel's dear to you. When you've been wretched and you've been miserable over what you've done and how you've seen things, the gospel is dear to you. Charles Spurgeon said it this way There is a vital connection between soul distress and sound doctrine. Sovereign grace is dear to those who have groaned deeply because they see. What grievous sinners they are. Not many people aspire to soul distress in our day and age. This is a bit of a lost art. It's a bit of a lost topic of discussion. I love going through a book because it stirs things up that wouldn't naturally just bubble to the surface. Soul distress and sound doctrine are tied together. This leads to some kind of physical manifestation. The word weep comes up. My apologies to the Windows folks who happen to get the word weep on their icon, but there it is. (laughs) The evidence of this kind of repentance is sometimes physical suffering, sometimes sleeplessness, sometimes a complete loss of appetite. When you look at the price tag of indulging in this behavior or thought, it takes its toll and finds expression in weeping. Gut-wrenching weeping. Who does it take the toll on? God, your spouse, your family, your friends, the reputation of the gospel, the time and energy of those brothers and sisters who are helping nurture you back to restoration, which they're doing joyfully and gladly, but they could be elsewhere advancing the kingdom. There's a toll on this. Sometimes deep financial toll as well. Did you know there's a whole book on lamenting? It's called Lamentations. whole book towards it. So many times there's prophets who came weeping. There's actually God-sanctioned, king-ordained days and seasons of mourning and fasting to show our grief. I wonder how we could recapture rending clothes and wearing sackcloth and throwing ash and dust into the air. We don't have a lot of that, do we, in our culture? Some of us haven't been trained in that, but there's good to, to this. I want you to think of Peter here. Peter, after hearing the rooster, remembers with gut-wrenching sorrow, you will deny me. And what does it result in? him? Him weeping. Not just weeping, but it says weeping bitterly. That's a physical manifestation of his sorrow. I love 2 Corinthians 7.10. Listen to this again. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Don't you see this in Peter's life? He was reborn after that. He was reinvigorated. He was uh, reinstalled into Christ. Jesus renewed him. And for the rest of his life, in fact, he died for his faith. He wouldn't do that again. He went on to to advance the kingdom of God. Number nine is to be serious. James isn't forbidding joy and laughter, but I think he's condemning the frivolous, self-centered, sensual, flippant, and profane humor of the world. Look at what gets the laughs. Politics, I mean, this is ripe for this right now. Comics have a field day when there's Democratic and Republican national conventions going on. Because every little thing gets picked apart, and there's all kinds of humor and jabs going back and forth at it. I decided to click like on a Facebook quote this week from a friend of mine. It says this, don't be entertained by sin that put Christ on the cross if amusement for you takes the form of movies and escape and fantasy and novels and some different things or games and heading places and travel and those kind of things, if you have any sense that that is so that you don't have to think. I want you to picture a guy coming up to belly up to the bar and every day he just drinks his problems away. What he's doing is he's drinking so that he won't remember his life. A more suitable Christian way of doing that can be involved in tons of activity in the church. Just doing, busy, always doing stuff. But you'd never do what Mike Iaconelli's church did, and that is go to an all-day retreat where all you're going to do is have the Word of God and a journal out because that's the hard work of really diving into the depths of the soul. You might never go to a women's retreat because it might be exposed. You might have to come to some grips with some of your sin before a holy God. Be serious. Now, sometimes we, as individuals or churches, are accused of being too serious. I had a guy back here uh, a little while ago. He said, um, after one of the messages, it was in the book of James, and he said, um, I, I take it you're not a fan of casual Christianity. Uh, I said, no, nah, not so much. You know? And uh, I just kind of laughed. He said it kind of in a laughing way. and. And what he got from a sense was that it's kind of serious. I've had other people that said, uh, you know what, they, they tried church, our church, and they said, you know what? they just talked about God too much. It was really too serious and too heavy. You know, what if he came on this week? I mean, this would have been, a, you know, a real kicker for that. You, you will be accused of being too, too serious, too uptight. Why are you always talking about that stuff? People have precious little time to talk about et- um, eternity. Have you noticed that? That's why when this guy talks about the Holy Bible, I'm like, man, I'm all ears. Let's, let's see what the Lord has for this conversation. But you'll also be accused of being not serious enough and, and laughing and actually having a good time with God and enjoying yourself with God. What I see in the scriptures is I see both of those. Jesus was accused of the very same thing. He was calling out the hypocrisy of some people uh, that, that had accused him of this. In Luke 7, he says this, uh, They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played a flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. There's a demon behind every rock right there. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. book of Ecclesiastes reminds us there is a time for everything under the heavens. There is a time to laugh and be joyful. And I hope, church, we know how to do that. I know we do. I just spent four days camping with you. We know how to have a good time. But there's also a time for seriousness. There's a time for mourning and weeping. There's a time to take your laughter, which I love to laugh, and to just table it and say, it's not time for that right now. It's time to weep over sin. James 4, 8 through 9 in the message reads this way. Quit dabbling in sin. Purify your inner life. Quit playing the field. Hit bottom and cry your eyes out. The fun and games are over. Get serious. Really serious. Number ten is is to be humble. And with this, I just want to point to the prodigal son story because I couldn't think of anything better to just wrap this up. Here's a picture of humility. Luke 15, it says, The young man became so hungry after leaving his father that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned to his father. That's a posture of humility. That's a sense that what I've done is grievous, and I've mourned over it. I've paid a high price. I've made you pay a high price. Don't even take me back as a son. But just let me, let me come work for you. That's all. It's an understanding and an ownership of the grievous consequences that his will had imposed. Goes on to say, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him Coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I want to invite the band up right now. We're going to, we're going to close our service off in some song. We've gone a little bit over today. If you need to slip out, you slip out, get your kids, and move on. But let me say this. Right now is a season. Right now is a time. Our hearts have been stirred. The Scriptures have been spoken. Submission and cleansing and brokenness. There's not, this is not an easy road to walk. But it is the right road. In these words, we're being shown the narrow path to life. And when it seems too hard to take, I want to just challenge you. Take stock of how your life is going in rebellion to God in submitting to the world's ways. Gratification with no lasting satisfaction. Strife within that goes back and forth. Distance in relationships where there was once intimacy. Longing in life that with each passing year gets wider and wider. And a profound fear of death, or even a profound fear of sitting still long enough to deal with the deep issues of the heart. Just listen to Isaiah 55, 6 as I close. and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the sun and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, catch this, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is going forward today. His word's going forward today as a means of salvation. Listen to it. Respond to it.